Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Kip Kosek on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Acts of Conscience, Christian Nonviolence, and Modern American Democracy. There's a bumper sticker I like that says, Thou shalt not kill. He meant that part. The implication being that Christians, at least if you read the Bible, I guess, strictly and in a certain way, are not allowed to kill other people. And that includes contexts in which most of us would say killing is justified. This is a very difficult position to hold and live in the modern world, as the subjects in Kip's book would probably attest. They are a group of Christian pacifists who practiced a kind of nonviolence throughout the 20th century, and that includes in World War I and World War II and in the Korean War and the Vietnam War and the Iraq War. They never really succeeded in their goal of creating a world without war, but they were at the forefront of many issues that were extraordinarily important in the 20th century, and I'll just mention a few of them in their discuss in the interview. They would be the Civil Liberties Movement and the ACLU, that is concerning conscientious objection, but all civil liberties, also the Civil Rights Movement, and particularly equality between or among the races in the 1950s, that is the American Civil Rights Movement then the anti-war movement in Vietnam, and the anti-war movement today, I would say. So these people were extraordinarily important for 20th century American politics, and we should probably thank Kip for giving them the attention that they deserve. I really enjoyed talking to him today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Kip. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Pretty good. Good. Glad to hear it. I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Kip Kosek today. And we'll be discussing his really interesting new book, Acts of Conscience, Christian Nonviolence, and Modern American Democracy. As I was telling Kip in the pre-interview, my wife is something of a Quaker, and she uh, will, in a profoundly un-Quaker-like way, sometimes um, suggest that the Quakers are often on the right side of many issues. Uh, And I didn't really know much about this until I read Kip's fascinating book, which isn't just about Quakers, obviously. It's about Christian nonviolence in general in the 20th century, and it turns out uh, the um, Christian, uh, what does one call them, pacifists, uh, were on the right side of many, many issues. And that's part of the fascination of the book, to see uh, people with uh, true convictions that happen to uh, be really in tune with the broader zeitgeist, I guess I would say. But we can talk about that in due time. But it's a fascinating book, and I encourage you to go out and pick it up. Kip, why don't we begin the interview by having you tell us just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me on. I am uh, in. Uh, I, t- I teach at George Washington University now in Washington D.C., but I am originally a Midwesterner, and I was born in Wisconsin, and uh, a product of the, the great Wisconsin public schools. I grew up uh, in a small city called Manitowoc, between kind of between Green Bay and Milwaukee, there on the lake. Um, and I went to the University of Illinois for 
uh, college and started off actually as an architecture major, uh, but got really interested in history and took uh, advantage of the outstanding history department at the, at the University of Illinois, and, and that's where I really uh, started to, to learn, learn about uh, thinking historically, and that's really fascinated me, and, 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 and particularly, I guess, thinking historically about religions as, 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 as something that uh, isn't just about eternal and timeless truth, but, but religions as things that change and, and, and adapt over time. Um, then I went uh, to the East Coast and went to Yale uh, and took to grad school in an American Studies department, uh, which was some historians, uh, some people working on literature, some people working on, on contemporary culture and uh, other things, so an interdisciplinary uh, focus, and again, an, 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 an outstanding place to be with, with uh, all, all kinds of smart and, and interesting people there. Um, and, and there, too, I got, I got uh, there's a group there that was interested in thinking about American religion, a group that was drawn from uh, American studies, history, religious studies, uh, that met for discussion groups and so on. And that's where I really started this project, which was my uh, dissertation. I don't usually want to say that because it tends to, to drive away readers, but I try to take out the, the boring parts in, in, <laughs> in uh, turning it from a dissertation to a book. You've done a fine uh, job, let me say. <laughs> and so uh, after that, I, I, I came to uh, GW, George Washington, and was very fortunate to, to uh, land in an American Studies department, which has a very... Uh, capacious idea of uh, what American culture and American history is about, people doing a lot of different things, and we really have uh, a great interest in uh, American religion and American social movements and race in American history and a lot of the things that uh, I'm uh, that, that I'm working on and that and that uh, and that interests me and and that's where I uh, Finished doing the research and 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 writing for this, and uh, it's you know and, and and Washington is a great place obviously to do uh, this kind of work with the uh, the cultural resources and the and the research opportunities that one has at the Library of Congress. So uh, it's been great, and now I live in I I live in Falls Church across the river uh, in in Virginia, and uh, and and teach at GW. Mm-hmm. I see. So. Let's begin talking a little bit about the book itself, uh, and I want to start in a kind of unusual place, um, and that is with the scriptures themselves. As I told you in the pre-interview, I was raised a Lutheran, so uh, you know we have this thing about scripture. Uh, I think before talking about people that are, are Christian pacifists or, or hold a, a non-violence creed, we have to talk about what the scripture itself says about violence. What does Jesus say about about violence? Well, that's uh, a, a contested issue, right? And um, yeah, I didn't know we were going to start with Jesus. Yeah, well, you know, I did. I didn't really know either. It just occurred to me. Well, these people were Christians, and they probably I, read the text too. So I think that yeah, I think that's important because in fact, uh, Jesus was at the center. I think of what they of of, of their religion. And that sounds obvious, but I think it was. Uh, 
different different groups have different emphasis, right? Even different Christian groups, right? Some people are more focused on the, the text of the of the of the of the Bible. Some people are more focused on uh, maybe you know like the direct intervention of the Holy Spirit, right? And I think these people are really focused on the life of Jesus and the example um, of Jesus, and particularly, uh, you know, I think for them, the you know, the Sermon on the Mount is a big uh, part of it, right? Uh, the idea of turning the other cheek, not returning uh, evil for evil, right? And and but but beyond what Jesus said in the kind of in you know in the red letters in the Bible, I think what these people were also focused on was the example of Jesus's life, right? And the and 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 Jesus's death uh, as a uh, as a model for how the world works ultimately and how nonviolence works ultimately. That uh, in in defeat in, and well in seeming defeat, right? Jesus, uh, you know, is is, is killed. Right? That there is ultimately a kind of victory, and that um, that Jesus's choice uh, not to respond uh, with violence to his attackers ultimately gives him some kind of uh, some kind of power or some kind of strength. So it's different. I mean, if you want to get into to technical uh, theological points, you know, I I, I think the, the people in my book have sort of interpreted. Jesus differently than uh, a lot of contemporary evangelicals, in which the point of Jesus' death is that uh, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, right? And uh, he was he was the substitution uh, for 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 the for the sinful world, right? And that's the significance of Jesus' death. I think these the folks that I'm writing about thought a little thought the theology a little bit different. And saw Jesus' life as more of a model uh, to follow than as a literal uh, substitution uh, for our sins. But uh, but but Jesus was absolutely central. And one of the things I wanted to say about uh, these folks, because re- I think re- religious liberals are often seen as not very religious in a sense, right? That it's really um, the, the fundamentalist. Or uh, who, whoever it is that that are the really serious ones, you know, and liberals are kind of wishy-washy uh, and not as engaged and 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 a little suspect, right? But I wanted to say actually that these people had a real uh, theology, a and a real um, a, 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 a real religious intensity, right, in their focus on. Uh, Jesus' life and on and, and on the Bible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I want to um, move forward from the kind of interpretation of the Bible that these people might have held to uh, the Middle Ages and the early modern period very briefly because there is a background to modern nonviolence movements, in, uh, particularly in the Radical Reformation, uh, which here in Iowa lives among us uh, uh, in the form of Mennonites who are mm-hmm. all pacifists. They are... Uh, they practice a strict kind of nonviolence and are always conscientious, not always, but usually conscientious objectors when it comes time to go to war. Um, can you talk a little bit about them and the role that they played 
in the minds of the folks you're talking about, how the um, the people in the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which is what we're going to be talking about in a second, how they thought about these um, traditional pacifistic Protestant sects? Yeah, I I think that on one hand they were I think I think they were um, they had kind of two two ways of thinking about that kind of tra- older tradition of pacifism. I mean, in one sense they wanted to say uh, again that this is a real uh, Christian tradition, right? That goes all the way back to Jesus, right, and to the early Christians. Uh, but also, as you say, in the in the medieval and, and early modern period of the Mennonites with the Anabaptists, different kinds of radical Reformation groups, and so they were they 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 are in some sense the heirs of that tradition and are uh, indebted to that uh, that that strain of 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 Christian pacifism and, and of, of critique of violence and which is also which is also critique of the of the state in in, in ways we can talk about and of politics. Um, on the other hand, the, the people I'm writing about, I think, also thought that um, there was something new going on in the 20th century, and that there was something different about. The kind of nonviolence that they were uh, espousing, that they they admired uh, the Mennonites and and you know the uh, Amish, other groups that we think about, right? But they also um, they did they were very uh, self conscious about not wanting the people that I'm writing about were self conscious about not wanting to be seen simply as traditional, right? As old fashioned, as uh, defending some kind of uh, Traditional values or something. They really wanted to be seen as modern people, and they wanted to suggest that nonviolence didn't mean that you had to go back to uh, that, that you had to, uh, you know, ride in the horse and buggy and 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 live on your farm. Although some of them did uh, want to go and live on farms, but that but that nonviolence was something that modern people uh, could practice in the modern world. So there's a sense in which the the people I'm writing about are part of that longer uh, tradition that goes all the way back. Uh, 2,000 years uh, in, in Christianity, and there's also a sense, I think, in which they uh, break with that a little bit and and do something that's that that that's slightly different in response to the uh, kind of unprecedented uh, mass violence in the in the in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So, how does the now the organization we're going to be talking about, uh, just for the listeners' sake, is called the the Fellowship of Reconciliation? How does it get started? Uh, so the, the the group I'm looking at, the Fellowship of Reconciliation, or the FOR, as I'll probably refer to it, uh, gets started during World War One, and this is what some people have called the the, the first modern war, a war that's unprecedented in, in some ways in its uh, destructive force and the number of people who are killed, and in the in the efficiency with which people. Uh, can be killed due to new uh, technologies and, and 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 so on. And it's uh, you know it's much more destructive for Europe than it is for the United States. So for Europe, this tends to be a for you know for European historians, this tends to be a uh, you know a very uh, important milestone in the history of 
of uh, that region. And for Americans, it tends to be more uh, of a minor thing, right? It's nothing compared to uh, World War II or the Civil War, right? And America is not in World War One very long. Uh, but for the people I'm writing about, World War One became uh, re- became really important for for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, they it, it it sort of upset their belief, I think, in 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 progress. So if you look at uh, period right before World War One, and even in the early days of World War One, uh, lots of people. Uh, would believe in peace pretty strongly, or even 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 I think call themselves pacifists. So you know, Will, uh, Woodrow Wilson's uh, Secretary of State, I believe it is, is William Jennings Bryan, who says he's a, he's a pacifist. Right? It'd be hard to imagine uh, someone in Obama's cabinet uh, <laughs> saying he's a pacifist. He or she is a pacifist, right? But this is this is, this is possible. Right? It seems it seems it seems plausible. Uh, and and even when the war breaks out in Europe, Americans. Are saying you know, this is, we, we don't want to have anything to do with this. The Europeans and yeah, you know, we might expect this from them, but we're we we we're, we're we're kind of beyond that, right? Um, and so my people, the people that I'm writing about, are actually um, I think kind of you know they have a lot of company in in thinking that war is out 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 outmoded, outdated. The world is. Uh, too economically interconnected and, and culturally interconnected for for war to make any sense, right? Uh, and then in 1917, the it, it, events kind of turn, and 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 uh, and even going back a year or two before that, and and the U.S. you know eventually ends up uh, entering the war, and suddenly uh, there is great support uh, for the. For 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 uh, the the U.S. Uh, violently intervening uh, in Europe, and so the the people that I wrote about are kind of the people who uh, didn't change their minds. A lot of people did change their minds and said, uh, "Well, it turns out that sometimes uh, there you know there are wars that that uh, that that have to be fought, right? Just just, just wars." Mm-hmm. Uh, and the and the people that that, that I'm writing about uh, still maintain that this was that this was a mistake. They found themselves increasingly isolated uh, and increasingly marginalized, and even uh, possibly under under criminal suspicion. Right, there were laws that were passed to uh, that that effectively criminalized a lot of anti-war uh, speech. Uh, people, these were ministers who lost their uh, pulpits, right, so were essentially fired from their jobs. Uh, and so it it was a kind of crisis for them. World War One was uh, a crisis of, of what they had thought uh, you know, the way that kind of progress was going, and also what they thought kind of their uh, where they fit into America. Right? They said, I, I, I think these people kind of a, a lot of them, the early ones, didn't intend to be radicals, you know, but they. They kind of found themselves in that position almost by accident. Uh, so they, so a lot of them uh, came together in uh, in the in in the Fellowship of Reconciliation. The other thing that happened was some of them actually went to Europe. Uh, some young people uh, who were involved, especially with the YMCA, which 
I, uh, a Christian group uh, centered on uh, did a lot with colleges. Uh, I, I think it was a little bit like the Peace Corps uh, today, with a combination of kind of humanitarian service uh, and overseas adventure. But the YMCA was more explicitly Christian. So some some people in my book uh, went over to Europe. Uh, Worked with prisoners of war, worked in, with the soldiers, worked in relief camps, and that experience for them was uh, was transformative in seeing the effects of the war. They weren't necessarily always, always on the front lines, but seeing uh, the wounded and seeing the way that religion had been put into the service of war in a way that uh, they found. Uh, upsetting that they found that 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 they thought was wrong that that the war had essentially been uh, Christianized, right? Mm-hmm. That there were there were YMCA uh, ministers and so on who were supposed to preach to the troops, and the kind of and the line between being a Christian and being a good soldier was really uh, it, it became blurred, right? So mm-hmm. you have people at home who are experiencing this climate of uh, anti-war. Uh, or, or pro, pro-war, kind of pro-war uh, nationalism and, and, and kind of vilification of, of anti-war uh, sentiments. And then you have people in Europe uh, who, are, who are seeing this and experiencing this, and they all kind of came together in this group called the, called the Fellowship of, of Reconciliation that was formed during the war. Actually, before, it was formed before the U.S. even entered at this kind of earlier and easier moment uh, when just Europe was was at war, but then it became uh, kind of radicalized during and after the war, uh, after the U.S. after the entrance of, of the U.S. Uh, in, into the war, and that's the group that I kind of trace uh, through, through the book. I thought one of the most fascinating things about the book was precisely the way in which you portray the YMCA. We usually don't think about the YMCA as a child of the progressive era. Uh, but uh, the way it is portrayed in your book, which was fascinating to me as somebody who grew up in a YMCA playing basketball, not, not ever thinking that, that it was Christian in any way, really, um, that it really was kind of a progressive era institution. And if I understood the book correctly, these people um, thought that uh, many Christians had been shown to be hypocrites by World War One. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the things that happened as, as I see it, kind of the unintended consequences of ideas, maybe, uh, that these people in the YMCA, uh, the, the, the YMCA had been, had been saying to these young, uh, college people, and the YMCA was really prominent in, in, in the elite colleges, uh, you know, Princeton and so on. Uh, but but the, but but the YMCA view was like you know you 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 need to dedicate your life to Jesus to follow His example, uh, you know, and that's a t- you know that's a total commitment. That's something that takes up uh, should 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 extend to every part of your life. Now it, that wasn't intended to mean uh, you should go to jail for opposing the draft. You know that wasn't what they meant in 1910 or whatever when you know someone heard that uh, in college, but. That uh, way of looking at the world, we should follow Jesus where you know wherever that leads, uh, kind of led them, some of them, 
to think about war in this way, right? Mm-hmm. To think, well, if Jesus is uh, the, the the Lord of my life, then that means I can't part- I can't participate in war. And and a lot of the YMCA leaders uh, actually backed off from that, uh, and 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 didn't you know they they didn't themselves uh, become uh, pacifists. And and so one of the one of the big leaders of the YMCA, John Mott, uh, who kind of starts the the, the FOR, um, leaves a couple of years later because he you know he was interested in kind of the ideal of peace in a gen, you know, general way, but he didn't mean to make this like strong political statement of pacifism. And when that when the lines get drawn really sharply, he he backs off. But yeah, they they. Um, the, the, the people that I'm writing about were, were especially disappointed by Christians and the Christian uh, church. Pol- politicians, you know, you can expect you expect this kind of uh, thing from them or this kind of hypocrisy. But but they were but but you know, Christians they had expected would have uh, been more consistent, right, and been more. Uh, uh, that made a stronger case against the war, and 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 this is you know part of this too is it's not just they they weren't just thinking about America right they were thinking about uh, Europe too which was supposedly the you know the the, the home of, of of Christianity and that was of course connected to uh, civilization right in a more, maybe in a, you know in, in political sense in a cultural sense. And so World War One destroys uh, that idea, at least for these people, that Europe and America are kind of together, uh, leading the world in, uh, in 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 religious and political and cultural uh, values. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and some of these, a lot of the people in my book have ties to uh, missionaries and that world of foreign missions, which is also often. Uh, in the you know 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, before leading up to World War II, which is often motivated by this idea that uh, we are going to take the light uh, of of Christianity and often uh, kind of Western culture to uh, people who need it. And so World War One shows uh, seems to show for the people in my book and a lot of other people too uh, that that model of um, what, you know, Western civilization uh, as, 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 as as being superior is is is, is bankrupt, right? Mm-hmm. That there's uh, it's it's kind of indefensible now to go and 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 and, and enlighten uh, the heathen in Africa or, or or somewhere else, given what's happened uh, in in Europe during World War One. So there's a great deal about about hypocrisy and about. Uh, how you know, for my people, how one could be con- uh, a consistent uh, Christian in the, in the face of all this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, one of the one of the other really interesting things about this group of people is that although they never achieved their aim—that is, a world without war—they did begin uh, many strains or movements or traditions that are with us today and are much beloved. And, and I'm, we're going to mention several of them. The first of them is. Um, Civil liberties and conscientious objection. Maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, the way in which they engaged and sort of started the modern movement uh, to protect civil liberties during World War One. Sure, and I think you're right that a lot of this book again is about unintended consequences, right? That 
they didn't succeed at ridding the world of war, obviously. Uh, but there were other kinds of things that happened, and I think it's you know we're we're thinking about that question in history, and you know the history of of social movements or dissenters or or, or failed uh, groups more generally. Like, do they have uh, legacies that live on even if they even if they failed at what they said they were trying to do. So civil liberties and it's something that doesn't seem immediately connected to war, but it ended up being very closely connected to war uh, because the people in the United States on the home front in the United States uh, experienced the war really as a as an assault on civil liberties, as an assault on uh, free speech and and so on. So they, you know, they're arrested for uh, making anti-war speeches. The most famous case is the socialist uh, Eugene Debs, uh, who's uh, who's arrested. There's a great book about that that came out uh, by Ernest Freeberg uh, called "Democracy's Prisoner." But some of uh, my people, the Christian pacifists, were arrested uh, too, which which sort of horrified them because they didn't necessarily think of themselves as radicals like like Eugene Debs, you know, or, or communists or something, and they, they were kind of shocked to find that they were uh, put in the same category as these people simply because they opposed the war. Again, they were kind of reluctant radicals at, at the beginning, but they, they got very involved in, in civil liberties for, for those free speech, because of those free speech issues, and also because of conscientious objection. And World War One. Uh, raises the question of the draft in in a real way. Uh, what can the state do as far as uh, uh, claiming your body uh, for 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 war? And what the pacifist experience revealed was that uh, no, nobody quite knew uh, what to do with these people who refused uh, to fight. There are a lot of people who refused to fight, who who dodged the draft, who left the country, or uh, just kind of hid out. And then, you know, before the age of computers and GPS and so on, it was actually kind of hard to find people, you know, in rural Arkansas or whatever, if they if they wanted to if if they wanted to hide out and if they had the support of the local community. So so actually, a lot of people uh, did that. But the people in my book were actually, actually wanted to be very clear that they were not draft dodgers, and they they you know signed up as as conscientious objectors and and made it very clear that they were uh, specifically protesting uh, being drafted. They weren't trying to they weren't trying to get out of something. They weren't they weren't and they weren't scared. Uh, but they they just believed that this was wrong, uh, and so. In in other wars, in later wars, there was more of a system, alternative service, and other things for handling these two people. But in World War One, uh, there really wasn't, and these people were often sent to um, uh, military camps, and then they had these endless debates. Uh, what did what did a there? There is no real no real place. Uh, for them, especially if they weren't part of an established peace church. In other words, it was one thing if if you said uh, I, I'm a Mennonite or something, and, and my church has always believed in, in 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 pacifism, right? But a lot of these people were from were from different traditions, and they didn't really think that you should have to belong to a church that was considered pacifist. 
uh, to, to, to the rights of a conscientious objector. Uh, so, so no one quite knew what to do with them. So they went to, they went to these military camps, and then it, it was a series of endless uh, debates. Did they have to wear a, a military uniform? Um, could they be ordered to rape the leaves around the camp, or was that a form of military service? Uh, did they have to prepare their own food? Uh, so some of them uh, went on a hunger strike because they said, uh, we're, basically, we're basically in prison and the, the state should uh, provide for us. Um, and, and uh, you know, it wasn't clear, but nobody knew what to do. And so actually some pretty uh, terrible things ended up happening, and they basically, some of them, were basically subjected to what, what we today uh, call torture, I mean, being chained to uh, you know prison bars for for hours or, or days, and in in other ways uh, badly treated. And uh, they you know they were sentenced. They were eventually sentenced to uh, long jail terms for not obeying uh, their military superiors. So anyway, uh, the the. The, the FOR and other groups got very involved in, in these questions of civil liberties. And actually, the, the ACLU, the group that becomes the ACLU that we usually think of as defending the Ku Klux Klan and, and you know, defending uh, marginal groups for their you know, free speech rights, the, the ACLU is very much, uh, and, and its precursor, are very much engaged during World War I in uh, these questions of conscientious objection and of winning rights for... Uh, conscientious objectors. So those 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 uh, you know the the roots of our civil liberties uh, uh, you know regime today are in mm-hmm. are, are partly in, in with with these passes. And it and it becomes a question. It is a question that's related to violence, right? Because we uh, we we can see that the you know speech the the, res- the restriction of speech is the kind of is sometimes seen as a kind of violence, right? And, and the line is kind of is, is blurry, right? As we see with this debate over burning the Quran, right? Which is mm-hmm. partly implicated in questions of free speech and, and also raises issues of violence. So actually, these things uh, are much more uh, civil liberties and violence are much more closely tied than we sometimes think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, if I could ask you to just jump forward a little bit, uh, one of the things that you say in the book is that the uh, period. Which is bracketed by World War One and World War Two was really uh, not a very, how should I say it? It was not a very comfortable one for the pacifists, um, and one of the, for obvious reasons and for reasons that aren't obvious. And I want to talk about one of the non-obvious reasons, and that is um, the way in which they tried to deal with socialism in the Soviet Union, because. Uh, my understanding of socialist history is, is that many socialists were pacifists prior to World War I, uh, and there were still, and I know this from my own studies of Russian history and communist history, there were still large groups of pacifist groups within the communist movement. And so there seemed to be kind of a natural affinity between FOR and these various socialist and communist movements. But they also had a, a kind of rocky relationship with them. Maybe you could talk just a little bit about that. That's right. I mean, one of the ways to think about this book is is that this is a history of the religious left or one part of the religious left. But I always am nervous about saying that because these people had a really uncomfortable uh, place on, on, on the left. And in some ways, they had a lot in common with 
communists and socialists, and some of them, some of them did consider themselves uh, socialists and, and voted for the Socialist Party. But especially the, with the communists, there was tension, and there was tension in part because of their similarity. Both groups were uh, interested in the working class and labor and uh, justice for uh, for workers, right? improving the plight of workers. And both groups were interested in racial equality, which becomes uh, uh, central, right? And so, we, weirdly, pacifists are often, the pacifists in my book are often called communists uh, because they uh, talk about racial equality just like the communists do mm-hmm. back in the 1920s, 30s, 40s. Uh, and and the communists are involved, as you say, in 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 various kinds of of, of peace efforts and in various kinds of anti-fascist uh, efforts in the in the 20s and 30s. But there's this distinction that is sometimes uh, not so important, but becomes important at crucial points. That communists don't communists believe that some kinds of violence are acceptable. That that class warfare is uh, acceptable. Is and is is necessary, uh, and the pacifists in my, in my book uh, disagree with that. So they have fundamentally uh, at the bottom there's a difference in in philosophy that becomes a difference in uh, in practice. So uh, pacifists in my book are very skeptical of the Soviet Union. They're skeptical of communist. Uh, uh, Labor organizing, right, which they feel like is, um, you know, could lead to class class warfare, and it becomes important in things like the the Spanish Civil War in 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 the in 35, 36, um, which some people see as a kind of rehearsal or precursor to the to the Second World War, uh, and a lot of the American left supports the Spanish Civil War. Uh, but the past, and, and the, including including a lot of communists, right? Because this is uh, seen as a as a, uh, a war between fascists and 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 the left in in Spain uh, there. But the pacifists are they a lot of them uh, do not want to support the Spanish Civil War. Some of them will make statements about uh, in, in, in in support of in support of the left there. But a lot of them uh, don't want to want to be part of it, and this and this this creates a break and kind of shows uh, the fault line between believing that uh, believing in pacifism, right, and believing that the real problem here is violence. So you don't support this war, even though it seems like one side is kind of uh, espousing the goals that you want. Mm-hmm. And the difference between that view. That takes violence as another problem, and the difference between the view uh, of, of socialists and communists that took fascism or capitalism as a central problem, and sometimes you had to use violence uh, to fight to, f- to fight against these things. Mm-hmm. So it, it was uh, it was very interesting for me to see uh, the way that these uh, different groups on the left kind of. Uh, it's about these different philosophies, which had certain kinds of uh, certain kinds of implications uh, later on. Yeah, how did they deal with the question of uh, avowed communist atheism? 
Yeah, well, that was another problem, uh, and and one that that a pacifist linked to the question of, of of violence. That they thought that in some ways the atheism of communism was what allowed uh, them to countenance violence because they had no uh, sense of uh, religion as a as a source of of morality. They had no sense of uh, you know, of, 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 of Christian or religious fellowship, right? And and so the the people in my book are a neglected or, or kind of overlooked uh, group, which is the anti-communist left. We often think of anti-communism in, in the United States as being uh, Joseph McCarthy or uh, you know the, the the kind of far right conspiracy theorists, right? Even I mean, even now we have people. Are you know equating Obama with with with, with communism, right? This is a kind of conservative obsession, right? But I think there there are other kinds of anti-communism uh, which were not which were not like that. And the people in my book actually were tried to distance themselves from uh, McCarthy in the fifties and earlier versions of that uh, in the in the in the twenties, thirties, and forties. And, and they really wanted to carve out a place on the left that was distinct from uh, from communism, and that's that's one of the reasons, for instance, that they turned to uh, Gandhi because here is a guy who was an anti-imperialist, who seemed to be uh, an anti-capitalist, who was a believer in racial equality, but definitely not a communist, and so that. That, that's one of the reasons they seized on him. So it's you know I think the you know the story the the story of radicalism and the left in the 20th century in you know like in the world is is mostly this is the most story of communism which is which which makes sense because it is the most important uh, r- radical movement. But I wanted to show that there are these other kinds of uh, positions. You know it's not just pacifists. I mean there's uh, feminists and other other groups who who were also who could also be considered to be on the left, but were but were in a different place than uh, communism. And you know the, the the questions that people had after the after the fall of the you know Berlin Wall about what 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 what, what becomes of the left? Can anything be salvaged or whatever? And the kind of uh, loss of uh, you know, communism kind of discrediting either morally or, or politically, I think, opens a place for us to look at these other kinds of groups again and see the kind of diversity uh, that was there on, on some of these uh, issues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So let's skip forward a little bit uh, to uh, another one of these strange issues that the pacifists supported and promulgated uh, that then was in a certain sense kind of taken away from them. Uh, I guess that they probably wouldn't agree with that characterization, but um, but developed a life of its own, and that is the cause of uh, civil rights here in the guise of racial equality. How did they get involved in this in the 1950s? Yeah, well, civil rights have been important to them for a long time, and one of the things that I am uh, in, in in dialogue with, although I have a slightly different take on it than some other scholars, but, but a lot of scholars have seen the um, the civil rights movement is something that we have to extend backwards uh, before 
Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 or the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955 or 1956 to look back at World War II back to the 1930s uh, and, and even further back and see this broader movement. And, and the people in my book were part of that uh, broader movement. They were thinking about these issues uh, in, in World War II, uh, some prominent uh, black leaders, black, black civil rights leaders, uh, joined the FOR during World War II, Bayard Rustin, who's eventually going to be an organizer of the March on Washington, uh, James Farmer, who uh, is going to be the, the head of uh, Congress of Racial Equality Corps, uh, James Lawson, eventually joins the FOR, who's going to lead uh, the sit-ins and be active in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So it's a remarkable uh, thing that starts. Uh, before we think of it, uh, starting with, you know, uh, on a very small scale in the 1930s and 40s, just a few people, uh, but, uh, but in the, in the, in, in the, in the 1950s, it, uh, it grows into, into something bigger, and that's, the 50s and 60s, I think, is, is the kind of heyday of these people when their work that had been done in a very small way earlier on, uh, gains much more, uh, power and especially gained gained uh, power in the in the Montgomery bus boycott, which was uh, again a, a kind of collection of coincidences and 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 unintended consequences, but also something that uh, people had prepared for in a general way. Um, the FOR wasn't really involved initially with the Montgomery bus boycott uh, or or with Rosa Parks. But when they found out about it, uh, they got involved, and they sent a couple of people. Uh, Bayard Rustin was one, and later they sent a, a white, uh, uh, one of their white uh, leaders named Glenn Smiley uh, to advise Martin Luther King and <clears throat> to work out how nonviolence would uh, operate in this bus boycott. And... They weren't the only people doing this, but I think that they played key roles. And if you read, uh, you know, the, the the sources, you can see that they uh, they played key roles in doing this. They made a film about the the boycott, which they showed uh, around the South in in, in Montgomery and, and elsewhere. The FOR did. They made a they made a comic book. If you get my book, you can see a mm -hmm. picture of the the Martin Luther King comic book. Not a well known. Uh, a source in popular culture, but uh, it was a it was a book that a comic book that told the story of of Gandhi and and also the story of King and the bus boycott and this was distributed around the South, especially in um, uh, to African American colleges and <clears throat> and churches and so on. And so they the, the the FOR both worked with King on the strategy of nonviolence and and what that would look like, and also on uh, popularizing uh, the, the this movement and and uh, get getting the word out as to as to what was going on and trying to explain to people uh, why this is a good idea because the thing that I think important to remember is that nonviolence wasn't obvious and sometimes we I think we tend to think of it as some kind of natural development like it, it came out of the black church and, and the people in the black church were were, were Black Christians were really nice, so of course they used nonviolence. But in fact, uh, nonviolence is very uh, counterintuitive, right? It's not—it's—it's it's not something that you would 
think of or that would seem to be effective. Uh, and so, in the and, and so the FOR in the bus boycott and in the civil rights movement have to train people and right? have to discipline people. They have they they practice this. You know, when the when the when the when the buses are integrated uh, and everybody's going to go and sit wherever they want, there's a lot of fear that there's going to be violence, and there is, there is a little violence um, mostly on the white side. But they but they practice. They set up chairs. Uh, in, in Martin Luther King's church and people are, uh, they play white bus riders and black bus riders and, you know, somebody yells at somebody else and pushes them and you, you practice like not pushing back. Uh, and so one of the things I wanted to get at was the way that nonviolence was not just, uh, a good idea or a, you know, a, a thing that Jesus said that you should do, but but it was a technique and, and a discipline and something that had to uh, that that people had to work on and people had to mm-hmm. had to practice just like any other kind of uh, like a political organization would mm-hmm. would um, would need that kind of would, you know you'd ha- would require that kind of discipline. So they were really important in the civil rights movement, both at the level of uh, kind of ideas of racial equality, ideas of nonviolence, and also thinking about tactics like how were uh, civil rights protests going to operate and what would be what would be effective. And I think they're they're overlooked a little bit in in uh, the way we talk about uh, the, the the way we talk about the civil rights movement. And and I think they they show kind of where where it came from and how it how, how it got put together. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's odd you mentioned this. You mentioned a, a Martin Luther King comic book. Uh, I doubt anybody knows this, but I actually wrote the uh, script, so to say, or the text for uh, a book for young adults, a comic book on the Little Rock Nine. And um, this came out a couple of years ago. And I worked with an artist doing it. It's really quite a nice book. Uh, as I say, it's for young adults. But one of the scenes in the book... Uh, portrays exactly what you're talking about, that before they go to the school, the Little Rock Nine, they rehearse, um, trying not to react to uh, the angry crowds and to the police and everything else. They, they literally go through it. And so some of the students yell at other students. This is in the living room of a kind of famous civil rights activist whose name I can't remember right now, but they, they literally go through it. They role play it in order to become uh, to become habituated not to respond in the normal way, which would be to become angry and violent yourself. So uh, it was interesting to hear that. Um, in the 1960s and 70s, they branch out into other activities. For example, the FOR is important in the uh, anti-Vietnam War movement, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, so, so something interesting happens in the in the 50s and 60s. Uh, you know, for most of the book, they're this very small uh, group of people, this, you know, minority uh, margin, kind of marginal. Uh, I mean, well, in terms of numbers, uh, even on the left, right. And then in the 50s and 60s, you know, the, there's the decline of communism and the repression of communism. Uh, in some ways, and the you know the rise of the civil rights movement and this kind of religious uh, dissent, right. So these folks then become in the 50s and 60s much more powerful than they had been, and and and. Nonviolence becomes a kind of mass uh, movement rather than this avant-garde uh, project of of a few people. So that creates 
uh, new kinds of opportunities and new kinds of uh, of difficulties. So they are uh, uh, leaders in the in, in the anti-Vietnam War movement. In fact, one of the guys that I talk about who's central to the book is A.J. Musty, who uh, first gets involved in FOR during World War One. He's a minister. He loses his. He actually uh, resigns from his uh, pulpit because he feels he can't. His congregation doesn't accept his views. He gets active in the labor movement. Uh, for a while, and even becomes a kind of Marxist, and 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 basically leaves religion, uh, comes back, decides that um, Christianity is really the only true form of radicalism, and comes back and becomes a leading uh, uh, anti-world uh, opponent of World War II, opponent of U.S. intervention in World War II. Uh, and then in the in the 50s and 60s, gets involved in anti-nuclear protests and civil rights and uh, anti-Vietnam War protests. So he's now, you know, in in the 60s, he's he's an he's an old man, but he's still uh, out there doing this stuff and actually goes to Vietnam uh, and 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 becomes a kind of uh, you know model for for a younger generation of. Uh, of people, so he's a really fascinating character who kind of care, you know, who went through the entire uh, century pretty much uh, with this with this pacifist conviction, and one of one of the central characters in my book. And there are other people uh, who uh, are active in the in, in the anti-Vietnam uh, War movement. And again, I but again, I think it's important to say that like they had. Uh, been doing this for a long time, and so again, we sometimes think of like uh, the, the you know the anti-Vietnam War movement as, as this explosion of uh, anti-war sentiment. But at least for the people in my book, they've been thinking about uh, draft resistance and anti-imperialism and the Cold War and all those questions for uh, for quite a while. Um, and and so they were. Uh, and so they were able to be quite quite influential in the in the movement when it when it when it when it got big. I mean, the other thing that happened uh, was that Catholics came to play uh, an increasingly important role in Catholic uh, radicalism uh, and 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 nonviolence became important in the in in, in the anti-Vietnam War period, mm-hmm. uh, like par- primarily through the Catholic Worker Movement, which I don't talk a whole lot about, but which is. Uh, important for this story too, the Catholic Worker Movement that starts in the 30s uh, opposes World War II, and eventually those, uh, because there's not too many people opposing World War II, uh, those Catholic workers and the and the FOR people eventually find each other and do uh, some early civil rights activity, and uh, and then later get involved in anti-Vietnam War uh, action, and so it becomes, I think, in the 60s more of a uh, interface effort, and the FOR is much more interface like now than in the time I was writing about it. You know, at the time it starts, it's really, there's a lot of anti-Catholicism, right, among Protestants, and this is really kind of a Protestant group. They reach out to Jews a little bit, uh, but in the 60s, there becomes more of a sense of uh, re- religions working together uh, against war, uh, mm-hmm. and I think that's that's one of the things that 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 changes in the 60s, but they but they do have this presence throughout 
uh, the, the, the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So the FRR exists today. Can you tell us a little bit about it? It exists today, and they have headquarters in uh, in, in Nyack, New York, so over the Tavern Sea Bridge. Uh, they're, they're doing the research, and they still are active in uh, in these in, in this work. They've been especially active in uh, the Middle East and in uh, you know, and in thinking about the the, the wars in Iraq and, and and Afghanistan. They are still, to me, um, focused on this kind of you know, they're they're not a they're still not a huge group, you know, and they never have been, and they're really focused on these kinds of small, you know, seemingly small-scale actions and, and on kind of the value of those. In, the, in essence, I think they do have something in common with the, with the Quakers in thinking about the kind of value of the individual and kind of the individual's uh, action. But, uh, but yeah, they're still, they're still around. You can find them uh, on the on the web and other places, they publish a, a, a journal called Fellowship that really, you know, you know, I think calls attention to some of the the, I mean, on the calls attention on the bad side is to some of the forms of violence that we don't often read about in the media, but also more positively calls attention to uh, the efforts that people are making uh, in the Middle East and elsewhere that often don't get talked about in the media. So, still quite a fascinating. Uh, fascinating group. Mm-hmm. Well, we're almost out of time, but I really want to ask you uh, uh, a question that's a, it's kind of inside baseball for historians or theologians or people that think about religion, but uh, I really have to ask you. Um, one of the people you talk a lot about in the book is Reinhold Niebuhr. Our president is fond of quoting Reinhold Niebuhr, I think. He, I, I don't think I'm wrong in saying he does not come off well in your book. Uh, in fact, uh, I, <laughs> I was reading some of it to my wife last night, and he doesn't even come off as very Christian, really. Um, uh, what did the people in the FOR think about Niebuhr? No, what, what was uh, what was what is your take on him? Yeah, Ryan Holt Niebuhr. I, I mean, he's uh, you know, I'm I'm thrilled that Obama is quoting someone from my book. It's probably the only uh, <laughs> uh, well, maybe Martin Luther King as well. Uh, and, and you know, in, in some ways, I'm you know, I think it's good that Obama is. Uh, is 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 reading Reinhold Niebuhr and thinking about some of the issues of uh, moral action, religion, politics at 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 that level, right? Like any uh, kind of reflection in that way is probably uh, <laughs> it's probably it's, it's probably good at some level, right? Um, Niebuhr is, you know, I I actually have a lot of. Uh, Respect for Niebuhr, and I think his insights are are really good. Um, the so, so Niebuhr uh, starts out as a well early on he's a pacifist. He joins the FOR uh, and is is one of their leaders, uh, and then later he he breaks with them in the 1930s. Uh, and says, you know, basically says that that passes is not viable. That there are sometimes when you have to fight because we live in we we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a world of 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 sin and evil. And if you want to be involved in in politics, you have to sometimes 
you know, make make certain kinds of compromises. And then Niebuhr becomes the great uh, Christian defender of U.S. intervention in World War II. He has an essay called Why the Christian Church is Not Pacifist, which I assigned in my classes, which talks about how uh, one has to balance the Christian ideals of love and justice. You just you can't always be uh, loving, because sometimes justice involves violence. Um, the pacifist, so... You know, the pacifist criticism of Niebuhr was a couple things, right? They thought, uh, but I think their, their, their sharpest criticism of him was that, um, he, even though he had a fairly specific view of what was a just war and when one would have to use violence, and he's actually very, uh, careful to say that most wars are not justified, and nonviolence is probably good for most of the time. But what the pacifist said was um, that that Niebuhr actually, and this was in some sense true, that Niebuhr kind of got uh, co-opted, and people used his arguments to kind of justify any, uh, you know, U.S. military action that happened along, um, and that you know, once you had compromised, once you had said, well, violence is sometimes okay, it was very easy. It was, it was hard to know when to stop compromising so that the, so that, you know, the difference between Reinhold Niebuhr and there's not much difference, AJ Musty says, between Reinhold Niebuhr and John, John Foster Dulles, right? Mm-hmm. The, the cold warrior. Um, and, and, and so you had to keep, so Musty said you have to keep this absolutist position. Uh, which I don't necessarily uh, agree, agree with. I don't, I don't necessarily consider myself a pacifist. Um, but I think that, the, you know, I think the thing to, to notice about Reinhold Niebuhr, and I think that the thing that, you know, Obama could probably read a little more in this, is that Niebuhr is actually really critical of of, of most wars. He really does keep a, uh, he, he, you know, he started off as a pacifist, and he still has uh, some of that idea of, uh, that, you know, that there is, that, 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 that a lot of wars are, are not justified. And so he actually, at the end of his life, actually comes out against, uh, the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, despite his, despite his disagreements with the pacifists, this is something they all, uh, agreed on. So even though Niebuhr is not a pacifist and says violence is sometimes, uh, acceptable, I think it's important to see that he, he was still often very critical of American uh, military mm-hmm. military action. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, thank you very much for a- answering the, that question about Niebuhr. I, I just was interested to hear an expert speak about him. I, I haven't read him for a long time, but um, it's, it certainly is. Uh, I agree with you that it's good that Obama's reading Niebuhr, I guess. Um, well, um, Kip, it's really been great having you on the show today. We're um, just about out of time, uh, but I want to take this opportunity to ask you our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, uh, what is your next project? What are you working on now? Well, I'm just finishing an article which takes off uh, on some of my interest in nonviolence and civil rights and, and, uh, and, and religion to look at protests at churches during the civil rights movement in the South. Uh, so African American students would go, or other or other people would go to white churches and 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 try to sit in on Sunday morning for services. These are often called kneel-ins, 
Uh, and sometimes they were allowed in, but sometimes they weren't. Sometimes they were even arrested. Hmm. Uh, and this showed in some ways that church that that southern white churches, even those who were evangelical and were supposed to you know, be trying to save everybody, uh, didn't allow uh, African Americans into their uh, into membership or even to attend on Sunday morning. And this is a part of segregation that I think has not been studied in this way. I mean, we think about the lunch counters and the buses and so on, but this is a, a site of conflict uh, at churches. So I'm just I'm just uh, uh, working on that as another piece of, mm-hmm. I guess, this this uh, broader story about mm-hmm. nonviolence, civil rights, and race. Well, it certainly sounds fascinating, and good luck with it. Thank you. All right. Well, Kip, thanks very much for being on the show today. I really appreciated talking to you. All right. Thanks for having me. This is great. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Kip Kosek about his new book, Acts of Conscience, Christian Nonviolence, and Modern American Democracy. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.